Welcome to season four of the Go Off Sis podcast, brought to you by Target, our destination for celebrating ourselves and our success this year. Hello, dears, and welcome back to the Go Off Sis podcast, brought to you by Target. Okay, so today, oh, today, we are... We're going to be talking about home, okay? Um, I think, you know, if there's anything we've learned this past year, it's that you better like where you live. And a lot of us here in the booth are in different spaces, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are too. So we want to talk about it, get into the idea of home, how it's changed, what it looks like, how we dress it up, where it is, who it's with, how to buy one, all of that today. Before we jump in, I want to just introduce the roundtable again. We got our sisters back up here. Sound off for us all. Steph, how you doing? I'm doing great. I I love that we're talking about home today because you guys know I'm settling into my new space. So this is uh, very appropriate. Very excited to get into this conversation. Kathleen, how's your home feeling in the six? Oh, my home is good in the six. I've just, this is it. This is home. This is where I've been. This is where I'm going to be. I feel good today. I'm ready. I feel like the Aubrey just jumped out. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, not the drink, yeah, the we, Aubrey. We all talk like that. <laughs> yeah. That's, the, that's just the tea dot in us. <laughs> that's Chelsea's man. That's Chelsea's I know, man. I know. Let's take it. I'm a Drakeologist. It's, I can't. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> 15, 15 years. Yikes is correct. Speaking <laughs> of... <laughs> Sid, young Gunna, how you doing today? Young Gunna, ooh, yes. wow. I am good. I'm in Brooklyn, and people are already out roller skating with their little kids in the park next to my house. So I know the summer antics are right around the corner. Yes. Okay. And I think that's also one of the things we're going to be talking about, people getting outside of their homes, because I know most of us are ready for that, too. All right. Well, I am Chelsea Sanders, VP of Unbothered. And before we sort of jump into our conversation, I want to ask, dream home locations, because I feel like we all had time to think and ponder what our spaces are like, and in a perfect world, what that would look like. So, all right, what are our dream home spaces? I'll start off. My dream home location, which forever and I was always been ever since I've been there, Paris. That's it. Mm. And I spent eight months there in college. You know, we all do our summer abroad, and I spent the time studying hip-hop in France and touring with bands and just learning about the idea, but hip-hop, if you guys don't know, France is the second largest market for hip-hop outside of America. It's huge. And if you guys really want to read my senior thesis, I will send it all to you when I say <laughs> that genuinely it is everything I am and everything I'm not. Um, but I think one of the things that I've always said is 10 years from now, I will disappear into just like a jazz club in Paris and I'll just be on top of a piano in a red dress and that will be my home. <laughs> Ooh, I love that life for you. Yes. Learn yes. something new about you every day, Chels. Yeah, you know. Did not like know an this. onion. Like well, an onion. Layers. <laughs> she contains multitudes, Kathleen. Steph, where, where's your dream home location? Definitely NOLA. New Orleans, listen, very magical city. I went for the first time in 2016. I was covering Essence Festival. And I don't know. I stepped off the plane. And I remember I was in my Uber going to my hotel. And I just felt like I was at home. There's just... 
Sometimes I feel so familiar about it, even though, like, I hadn't been there before. I don't know if I lived there in a past life or mm-hmm. what was going on, but I feel like the ancestors are calling me home. So who knows? Maybe in the next three to five years, I'll be down in Louisiana living my best life. I miss mm-hmm. the South, so I feel like it's fitting. Yeah, those streets are alive in NOLA, so I get that. Yeah. They, they call to you. Yes. All right, Kathleen, how about you? I mean, growing up, it was always New York. I just wanted to be in New York City. And now, as I'm older, I want to be where the cold isn't. So, yeah, I've been thinking about L.A. a lot, but I also have been thinking of, speaking of our ancestors calling us home, about Ghana. Mm. I've been thinking about going back. I mean, we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about maybe setting roots down Back home where my roots are. Mm, I love that. Ooh. All right, Sid, how about you? Ooh. Since we're talking about homes, definitely multiple homes, because Ooh. I need to mm. be where the money resides. <laughs> and that's on Mary Had a Little Lamb. So I would have a place in New York, definitely. I really want to get fluent in Spanish because I took a ridiculous amount of years of Spanish classes. And I just feel like it's time for me to be a bilingual mommy. So maybe like Spain, but I'd be open to another country in South America. Also a nice vacation home on someone's island. I just, I'm just trying to be lounging in somebody's sun with somebody's sand and then maybe own that sand and that island So maybe Bahamas. I'm open, Mm. honestly. I'm really open, but it has to be, I have to have a warm escape and then Mm. multiple properties so that we can keep this money flowing. I just, I love how your dream, (laughs) you just have an investment portfolio. And I just, I really want to shout you out for that because (laughs) that is what we call like, again, future proofing. Okay. Broke don't look cute on me. So (laughs) since like wherever the yachts are, that's where I'll be. Fair enough. And I think it's so funny because all of us have different answers to that. But I think when we think about home, it's a lot about the things that we like value, right? In ourselves, the things that we, one, love about ourselves, the one, the things that we crave in our environment and our surroundings. And I think that's such an important thing when we consider home, especially for Black women, because we are so central, right? In a lot of ways, we are the center and the sort of energy of our homes and our communities. And I think home becomes such an important concept when we frame it like that, because it is. It's so funny, Kathleen, when you talk about sort of wanting to be in New York, right? And wanting to make that place like a home as like, you've made it. Like that is your home. That's like your measure of success. And I think now we're thinking about things a little bit differently. And we're thinking about what may have been important to you in a home a couple years ago, a couple months Mm -hmm. ago, is different than what's important to you in a home now, right? Which I think is so interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's this tweet going around, everybody keeps saying it, but, you know, we're not working from home, we're living at work. Mm. And so now we are really just reimagining what our homes should look like. Our homes are more of an extension of ourselves than they've ever been. 
And so they need to be this safe space. And and I think that my home is that, but I don't know if I've really separated the work from the home situation yet. They are one in the same. Um, and I don't think that that's healthy. I don't think that that's good. Whether like the city that you're in can feel like home, absolutely. But the space that you're in should definitely feel separate from work. It feel, should feel separate from anything that stresses you out. And I know that that's not the case for a lot of people, especially right now. Mm, at all. And I think that's that's a really, really great point. But when we think about like, hey, we're doing everything, living, working, loving at home. Home. So when you think about sort of like, what does that time look like? What does that space look like? It, it shifts and it's different. You have different priorities because I was in New York up until last August and I've been in LA for as many months as that is. And I think when thinking about coming here, I'm from here originally, my family is here. And so it made sense to me in thinking about if I'm going to be at home all the time, why don't I go to where I've just called home my whole life? And for some reason, I still think of LA as home, which is weird because I haven't lived there. I haven't lived here in over a decade. And I think that was also just like hard for me. And I'm sure a lot of listeners can sort of agree of like, having to go back home or be in places that maybe they didn't think they were going to be in. Because sometimes when I'm back home, I I feel like I'm 16, but I still have to work a full day. (laughs) So I'm like, not only do I have that, but now I got to work too. Like all of that sort of like emotion on top of trying to be productive every day has really made home a charged space in a lot of ways and sort of complicated, at least for me, since I've been here in LA. But Steph, how about you? I know, you know, like you said, you just moved into a new place. Are you feeling freer from that concept, I guess, or complication that I'm currently in? Yeah. I mean, I just want to say too, like I also thought about going home to Florida, mm. especially right now because the, the weather is great. I can go to the beach. Mm. I grew up at my grandfather's house. There's a family of cats that like took residence like in his yard. So I'd have like the cats and the fruit trees and all, you know, all those great things. But it's also like, as much as I love my family, do I really want to give them that much access to me? You know what I mean? Because I, I think that's where kind of like the feeling 16 again kind of comes in. Because <laughs> yes. you don't feel like you have as much autonomy or even privacy sometimes, right? When you're when you're that close to your family. And I, I think they expect to see you a lot more often when you're a lot mm-hmm. closer. So now that I'm living by myself in Brooklyn, I think for me, it's kind of like a full circle moment. Like I have always known that I wanted to be in Brooklyn. I've been talking about this since I was in high school. The first time I saw Brown Sugar and was like, yes, I'm going to be Sydney Shaw in the Brownstone. This is my life. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so now I'm here and we've been working from home for like a year and realizing like, oh, so the meeting really could have been an email. There's so Ooh, much that we can get every done. Every single one. Yes. Every single one. Emphasis on every single one. So I'm just thinking about what does relocating maybe look like? Because we have so many colleagues who have relocated everywhere to, you know, Chelsea, LA, you know, Atlanta. We have colleagues in Detroit, you know, all over the state, some in Italy. Where will I maybe want to be maybe even in like the next year or so? I think before I was kind of feeling bound to NYC, given where I work. But now I'm kind of realizing like, hmm, maybe there are some more possibilities. And that is something I think we're just realizing, like the borders that we've built around ourselves and our homes, are they're not real. 
they none of them are real and they don't exist. And even though, again, I, I am very privileged to not live with my family in LA and to be able to have my own space, you're right, Steph. Like, they do get to call on me more. They know that I am accessible, and therefore that means they have access to me. <laughs> and that's hard. And I think for family, whether you're back home or visiting family, that's hard to be able to, like, create those boundaries and those borders again when we now realize they don't actually exist. Mm-hmm. Kathleen, what does that look like for you? I know in Canada. Well, it's really interesting because home is something that my partner of nine years and I have talked about and disagreed about a lot. He is from Newfoundland, which is a province on the other side of the country. It's pretty small town. Even like the city there is very small. It is predominantly white, extremely white. Um, And I have tried to live there throughout our relationship. There has been a back and forth of, you know, him wanting to go home and me trying it and just not feeling like myself. If we're Mm -hmm. talking about home as an extension of us and our personalities and who we are. I've I've never been able to really feel at home there. And I've tried because the man I love feels at home there and his family is there and I love them. But what we have realized is that maybe that's always going to be his home and here is always going to be home for me, especially because my family's here. I love my family a lot. My brother's my best friend. He lives down the street. We're in a bubble. He's like the only person I get to see through this. And so, the, I mean, it's it's been really tough. And I think that if anybody's listening who has ever been in a long-distance relationship or has a partner whose family is in a different spot or is from somewhere else, I'm sure that they can relate to this push and pull and this back and forth. And I've just decided that in order for me to feel at home, there needs to be community with other Black people. That's Mm. like a priority in my life. Mm. That's always going to be my measure of where I call home, where I live, who's around me, whether that's my family or that's just other Black folks I find to create a community with. Mm. Mm. Okay. Well, you're you're saying a lot here. And— What I really just appreciate about what you just shared is the boundaries that you set for yourself, even though, again, we know that borders are different now and they don't exist. The boundaries that we set for ourselves when it comes to our home Mm -hmm. become even more important, right? So when you're sort of talking about Newfoundland is not home to you, right? So as we're sort of considering the places that we want to call home and the places that we do value, I think that's an important piece to say, this isn't home for me and Mm -hmm. this is why. And to be able to sort of identify that also is a great just it's a powerful thing to be able to say this isn't home for me because a lot yeah. of people don't also don't have that privilege to be able to say that too, you know? Yeah, they don't. You're right. But it's also sometimes I've been second guessing the fact that I've always said I have to live in a big city. I have mm. to, this is how I've defined my life. Like growing up, I either had to live in New York or Toronto. Like I am a city girl. That is who I am. And should we be defining our personalities and who we are based on a bunch of buildings? My partner, I'm home. 
You know, he's talked mm. to me about how wherever I am or where our dog is, that's where he finds home. And to me, that sounds healthier than <laughs> me being like, I got to be in a big city. But we do this, right? You're a small town girl or a big city girl. Like, these are tropes in life that we have perpetuated forever. And Sid, in our uh, last episode, you were talking about, for you too, very similarly, that you went to school in New Hampshire in a small, small boarding school that also didn't have a lot of Black people. What was that like for you? And like, how did you sort of figure out what home was and wasn't? So I had a really rude awakening going to boarding school and realizing like, okay, I'm in this very small white town that's part of this larger white state of New Hampshire. And I never expected to fall in love with it and to have the relationship that I do with that place. And I realized years after I graduated that that hold was so real and intense that home can really sneak up on us. And I just, it's its incredible to think that in a school of 150 people, faculty and students, I still found my people. I still made it work. I think a lot of people think, oh, you went to boarding school. It's so cool. Like you came home on breaks and like you get to see your friends and your family. But it was like, no, I went away for four years and I didn't really have a friendship with my sister. I didn't really know her. I just knew her as my sister. And it was like, that obligation of love because she's my sister. But we didn't really know each other. And so my parents had to get to know me. I had to get to know them. And it was really interesting to reconstruct what I called home inside of this already structured space of my apartment building with my family. And now that I'm here at this point, I'm like, okay, I'm kind of ready to move out low key. <laughs> Love the fam. Love y'all. I really Love do. Love you. Deuces. <laughs> but at this point, it is time for me to put my two weeks notice in. And <laughs> two weeks notice. Yes, girl, two weeks on this. If I could give a day, it would be a day. But um, I've just realized it's kind of hard. Like the realities of adulting suck. Because I'm out here, I'm like, oh, yes, girl, you get in pay. Like you get a job. But then you look at rent prices and it's like, wow, can I actually afford the things that I want and the things that I need, which is a space for myself, my own sanctuary to call my own without having to deal with anyone else. Like the reality of trying to build that space for myself is now becoming more real. Yeah. I remember being in that position. Same. A lot of people are thinking about buying homes thinking about moving, thinking about shifting their spaces, thinking about redesigning their spaces. I think when it comes to sort of home ownership, I personally am clueless, genuinely, I am. And I don't know what it would even take to start to even buy a home and what that looks like. But as we're now forced to think about that, I, I am just thinking like, what would it take to own a home? Kathleen is the only person <laughs> who owns their home. Huh. Can you maybe tell us? <laughs> well, on the real, real, it takes privilege. Mm. My parents helped me with the down payment, paid for the down payment, not even, so they paid for the down payment on the place that I live in now. I pay for everything else now. But if I didn't have that head start, 
I would not be a homeowner. And I know for a fact that the majority of people our age who own, that's the same story. And we need to talk about it more. There's this shame that comes with admitting that you had help from your parents because it is a privilege. And I will never apologize for how hard my parents worked, how little they came from, and how much they gave us. Never going to apologize for that. I'm never going to feel shame in that. But I also think it's very important for me to be real about it, be honest about it, and say, it's not magic. You aren't sitting at home not able to buy a home because someone else potentially worked harder than you or because they're better than you. No, it's because they had a handout. That's how it is right now. And I think that once we start talking about that and dispelling the myth of homeownership, we can start talking about the real problems, which is why do homes cost so much? Why are we not getting paid enough to be able to own them, to be able to afford them on our own? Let's talk about that stuff because that's the real. Ooh, that is so, so true. And I think in the same way that we need to be having more open, honest conversations about money, about our salaries, about student debt, about owning our financial futures and our financial stories, home ownership and sort of dispelling that myth is such a huge part of it. Because I feel like, like you said, in pop culture, even on like social media, you see that 25-year-old with the keys to their home, like, (laughs) I did it. You know, it's just the grind. I wake up, get that bread and go for it. Like, girl, you missed a few steps. Like, I understand. Okay. I understand how it was. And now like, how it's going, right? But like, where was the middle part where you give us the actual recipe and tools of how you actually bought your home? Steph, we were on a call with someone a couple of weeks ago who literally was just telling us, you know, had bought a home before she was 30, an amazing mm-hmm. black woman. And our jaws were just literally on the floor. We Got a landline phone and everything. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Not the landline. Yes. And we were just literally like, sis, how did you do this? Like, genuinely, where did you go? And she similarly was like, well, you know what? I signed up for a course and they literally just gave me the one, two, three, four, five tools. But I didn't know you had to get a lawyer. I didn't know you had to do a risk assessment assessment. I didn't know that you had to do zoning and all of these things when it comes to buying a home. And I think that's such a huge part of destigmatizing or really just like tearing away the idea that we can't own a home because we feel like we've never we haven't seen it. So we don't know what that like model is and we also just get really fatigued by this rhetoric that like, all right, you can do it if you just try. Bitch, I'm trying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just think that there, there needs to be more literacy around all of this. Like, I still don't even know half the stuff. I pay my mortgage every month and I'm like, I don't understand. Let me go to my financial advisor and get them to do things for me. And I should, like, that's embarrassing to admit. I should know exactly where my money is going, exactly what my investment is, and I don't. So that's a lot of conversation. And I like the transparency that we have in our family to have those conversations. And it's not like, okay, we're going to talk about finances away from the kids. Like, this is something that at a young age I have been privy to. Like, during the recession when my dad lost his job, we were all feeling it. And it wasn't like any sort of charade to be like, oh, we can afford things when we can't. Like, 
we have always had very honest and direct conversations when it comes to finances and home maintenance and home ownership. And that's something I appreciate because it doesn't leave me completely in the dark. But I have noticed there are a lot of people, especially like we talk about with social media, that love to market this fast paced, fast track. I got it just like that kind of clip by clip. And it's like, okay, you're now telling me that the way that you got that is just by showing me these pictures. And I have to now sign up for your marketed course, run my pockets, even though I'm already broke, to figure out how I can get this house. First of all, I'm trying to rent first, even though I want a house, that's just not realistic. So I'm going to now put money in your pockets from the pockets that are already dry to try and figure out the steps that I need to secure that future. So it's somewhat of a frustrating cycle because I feel like you kind of have to know people who have gone through home ownership to get in. And that's a very niche crowd or small crowd because then you don't know, are they willing to talk about finances? Are they actually going to give me real life help? Or is it just going to be like a nice little pep talk of you can do it? Mm. Ooh, that's that's a, a really, really great point that, again, I don't think we're talking about enough, right? Of like being able to know people who know the recipe. Mm. And I feel like for a lot of us, again, even though we're, we're trying to learn it, that also comes from the fact that maybe our parents didn't, right? Our parents maybe didn't know what that looked like, what homeownership and true financial wellness really looked like, right? So when we think about, again, just like generational wealth, right? And mm. I see some of my friends who understand the stonks and all of that and understand, you know, what like it actually means to be investing in things or to buy a property or to, again, some of my white friends who are buying properties in places that I could not pay them to go 20 years ago, number one. Mm. I could not pay people. Let me just real quick, could not pay people to go to my house off of the 10 freeway. 20 years ago. And I'm not going to tell you anymore because I don't know who's listening to this. But now those buildings and those homes are being scooped up for, like you said, like in Bed-Stuy, for more than a million dollars. Yeah. And it's also like we're talking about gentrification. Let's say the word. It's also there's no book or learning or going backwards you can do to stop that from disproportionately affecting Black neighborhoods from stripping people of their homes. Like, that's just the system being rigged against us. And that's, like, the real. <laughs> there's there's just nothing. There's there's no course you can take. It's called capitalism. Genuinely, it just, <laughs> it is. <laughs> and I think, like, for us then to sort of, like, not only try to understand the concept of home esoterically if we've been talking about it, but also, like, genuinely, how do I get a home? It feels almost like there are these insurmountable challenges to, to doing that. And that the way the system is set up, we're not supposed to own a home, right? Like, that we're not supposed to have our own space, that we're not supposed to feel at home in our world, which is hard, right? Mm-hmm. To even think about. Mm-hmm. It is hard to think about. And it's also, you know, to go back to family and to go back to our lineage and ancestors, it's hard not to think back to mm-hmm. all of that when you think of how the system is rigged against us or how we we weren't supposed to, especially in America, 
Black people weren't supposed to feel at home. It was it was mm. always your visitors here mm. and you don't belong here. And so then you have to, yeah, we start to think of our parents and our ancestors and where exactly they're from. Like, I know, Chelsea, you know exactly where your grandparents and everybody is from. Oh, yes. I have all of the papers, all of the receipts. (laughs) I was telling you guys before we recorded this, but I'm very privileged to know that. I am from a plantation in South Carolina. I have the receipts. My great-grandmother was the product of slave owner's son and slave. And the slave owner felt bad and freed her and her daughter in 1863. And she walked with her baby girl to Texas to get her 40 acres and a mule, which we own to this day. And my sister Mm -hmm. drove to Texas from LA last year with her husband and my two nieces to stand on that ground. And to have that and to have that lineage is so powerful for me because that to me is the biggest just marker of impact of like, nah, we were here here. You can do everything you want to try to erase, eradicate, irrationalize, con- like condense, genuinely wipe off the map our presence. But we were here and this was ours. And my great-grandmother's name was Winifred and my name is Chelsea Winifred Sanders. And so I think about that every single day, genuinely. It's interesting that you say that, Charles, because again, hearing it, I'm just like, wow, that history is not black and white. It's not painted in mm. black and white. It's very much color and it's very much v- recent, you know? It's yes. not millions of years ago. Like, oh, it just blows my mind because I remember growing up with my great grandma. So, like, that history and that link of generations is not far fetched. And speaking of, feeling a connection to a place is interesting because both my parents are from Guyana, South America, and neither of them want to go back and live. And when my sister and I visited, I didn't really feel much of an attachment to that place either. And so it always makes me wonder, like, this pull that was happening at a point in our history of going back to Africa, like, If I never lived there, even though I know my ancestry is in Sierra Leone, how do I then create that as my home? What genuine connection can I make without making it forced? If I never lived there and experienced childhood memories there or growing pains or anything. So I just think that... I would never want to force a connection with a space or people. And I think part of me wishes that I could claim parts of Africa as my home. But in my heart, and at least right now, I just am not there. It's it's not there for me. Hmm. It's so interesting to hear Jacques said because I felt the exact opposite Hmm. when I went to Ghana, which is where my dad is from. And my first time going there, he has a house there. It's got uh, a few rooms in it. My dad, again, came from absolutely nothing, but has been able to work really hard and went back and invested in land back home in Ghana. And he's always growing up, talked about 
Ghana as his home. Like once a year, he'd say, I'm going home. And we were always talking to my aunties and uncles and cousins. And I just always knew that that was part of me. And so we step off the plane in Ghana for my first time there. I was like 21 years old and I felt at home. Like there was just something Hmm. in the air to talk about feeling stuff in your bones. I just felt it. And then we walked into our house. My dad wasn't there. No one was showing me around. I went straight to my room, the room that was intended for me that I had never been in, and said, this is my room. And they were like, (laughs) my uncle was like, what? (laughs) How did you know that? Um, And it just, and I don't even, like Steph and Chels know, I don't even really believe in, in that sort of weird spiritual pull stuff. But I felt it in that moment. Wow we're talking about is like first and second generation concepts of home, right? Because whether, you know, your parents were born here or you were, I think that idea of home is really different. And it's it's complicated, it sounds like, right? Because the space that you claim and call home might be different than the one that your parents call home, right? And to be able to have both of those or neither of those, right, for you, Sid, it's hard to keep both of those in your head at the same time. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, it's a lot and it's weird and I, I don't even really know how to articulate it. And I think it probably goes back to all the things we said of how much we were ripped from homes, how the idea of home and Blackness is very intertwined but tumultuous Yeah, I don't know. I think that, you know, a lot of people who go back the year of the return, Mm -hmm. which was last year? Was the tail end of 2019. 2019, yeah. Yeah. I think that a lot of people felt the same way. Like, that was the spirit of that, right? And that's very true, right? That, like, you—the concept of home, again, can continue to change, too. Like, it doesn't have to be static, right? Like, we can Mm -hmm. change our minds of what home looks like. Or we can, as Sid said, have multiple homes. (laughs) Because, really, like, that's the goal. But I think what you're saying, then, like, there are these ties that still, like, pull you back. And whether that's culturally, whether that's, like you said, Kathleen, being able to see yourself in other people, whether that's, you know, finding home in food or music Mm. or— traditions, those are the sorts of things that come together and make home for us. What does your mom say about home? It's wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Home is wherever you are. I always just feel at home with you guys, but this was just so lovely to talk about home and and have that here with you guys and everyone listening. We have reached, though, the, the end of our discussion and our favorite point of the conversation called Don't At Me. And if you guys don't know, Don't At Me is meant to tie a bow on our discussion, give us some Guinness food for thought, maybe, uh, and really just give us a chance to go off at the end. And... In case, again, you forgot, you cannot add us. That is not a suggestion. That is a declaration. Do not at us. <laughs> Nothing. Nunca. None. Nine. I said no. Heart emoji. <laughs> and if y'all have anything to say about it, as my fave, the late, great Whitney Houston said, you call my machine and I'll call yours. <laughs> I won't be picking up, though. 
Today, for our Don't At Me, we have our queen in the six, our girl who's sitting on top of that tower, Kathleen Newman-Bermang. Take us home with that Don't At Me. All right, fam. I'm going to start this off, as I do often, by referring to the words of one of our elders, now an ancestor, the late, great Auntie Maya Angelou. She wrote, the ache for home lives in all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. She wrote that in All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes, an autobiography about her time in Ghana. Now, I have not spent nearly enough time in my homeland, but how I felt in Ghana, like I was returning to myself, a self free of judgment and not in contrast or comparison to anyone or anything else, a self I did not know growing up outside of my family. That's the home I wish for all of us, wherever that may be. In the past year, the four walls we have surrounded ourselves with through this pandemic have served as our workplaces, our playgrounds, our spaces for self-care, but they have also maybe felt suffocating. And I know that feeling yourself at home or even having a home is a privilege, one that, especially in North America, is not always afforded to Black people. From slavery to gentrification, we've been ripped from our homes and continue to live in a system that is rigged against us, where home ownership is an elusive quest that often ends with only the ones with the head start getting to see the finish line. Those of us who have had help, we need to be more honest about our handouts, with no shame, but in the spirit of transparency. And if you don't have a parental safety net, or if you've been trying to save for a home or build one on your own, It's okay if it hasn't happened yet. And it's okay if it never does. Because that safe space where we can go as we are and not be questioned, that place can be your mama's kitchen or in fellowship with other Black folk or in the reading corner of your room or a FaceTime with your best friend or even a moment of solitude. Black women can find home and community with whatever cards we're dealt. I know this because we've been doing it for centuries. No matter what home you create, if it's in Paris lounging on a piano like Chelsea, or tending to chickens on a farm like Steph, or whether it resides in multiple homes, I'm sorry, yachts, like Sid the Kid, home is where you are. And it's where your power resides. Welcome home. Don't at me. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Target, a.k.a. Target, because if you know, you know. Oh, we know. Okay, Steph, I really played myself because I just moved about five blocks from a Target and they already know my name. (laughs) I went in for some leave-in conditioner and left legit ready to start my own salon. (laughs) Oh my gosh, same. I went in for ketchup and left looking like I was planning the post-Rona family reunion. But honestly, okay, Target's got your back. Whether you're looking for everyday essentials or just trying to get on track and start a new business, Target is investing in the success of Black creators today, getting us on our glow up and supporting our community just like they should. Head over to Target.com slash Black Beyond Measure to learn more about what they're doing and how they can help you be about your business too. Money 
right. So today we have two bosses in the booth. If you don't know their names, you definitely know their wine, the McBride Sisters Wine Collection. Sisters Robin and Andrea started the company back in 2010 and were the first Black sister-sister duo to start a winery. And now, more than 10 years later, they are the largest Black-owned wine company in the United States. So grab your glasses, ladies. We're going to get into it and talk a little bit about that wine business. Robin, Andrea, we're so happy to have you. Welcome to Go Off, sis. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. Such a pleasure. Genuinely, this was like a podcast where we, you know, want to talk about business, but this was really, again, an excuse to just sit together and drink some wine. So let's do it. <laughs> our favorite excuse. Yes, yes. We have our here. We're ready. So let's dive right in. This episode, we are talking about home and the concept of home. And I think one of the things that we talked about in the roundtable was this idea that home looks so different now for a lot of us. And, you know, we've been talking about our, our given homes, our found homes, our created homes. And your story is a, a really interesting one because you two are sisters, but were raised in, in different homes in California and New Zealand and, and didn't connect until later in life. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about how you two found each other and made a home with your wine collection? So Andrea and I have a little bit of a, a unique story in that we didn't know about each other most of our lives. Although we were both born in Los Angeles, we grew up in two different countries. And so um, we have the same father, we have two different moms. And Ultimately, neither Andrea or I had a relationship with our dad growing up. And so we didn't know about each other. I was growing up in California, in Northern California, Central California, in Monterey. And Andrea was growing up in her mom's home country of New Zealand. And I moved to Monterey when I was like not even two years old. So, you know, my whole life that I can remember was growing up there with my mom. She didn't have any more kids. So I was a, a single child. She never remarried. Um, so she was a single mother raising me. And Andrea's mom um, moved from Los Angeles back to her home country of New Zealand when Andrea was five or six years old. And her mom had uh, found out that her breast cancer was terminal. And so she went back to her home country where her, her family was, you know, knowing she wasn't going to uh, survive her illness. And so, and her mom passed pretty quickly after that. And so Andrea was disconnected from our father. And so the two of us were just, you know, growing up in these two different countries on opposite sides of the world, completely unaware of the fact that we had a sister out there somewhere in the world. And it wasn't until many years later that our father himself was pretty, pretty ill. And he asked his family sort of as, you know, one of his, his last wishes to try to help find both of his daughters. Wasn't totally sure where we were, but figured I was probably in California somewhere. Andrea may have been back in New Zealand where her mom was from, but to do what they could to make sure that we found out about each other, that we knew each other, that we had, you know, we were connected and had the chance to meet, even if it was, um, if he wasn't with us, which unfortunately he did pass by the time that they found and connected both of us. Because this was in the 90s, so it took, quite a while to find both of us. They found Andrea in New Zealand first, actually. And then it was another few years before they found me. But once they did, and we learned about each other, 
and we had the chance to connect and to meet for the first time in 1999. And I think for Andrea, when you think about, again, this idea of home, did that idea of home change for you once you did find each other? What were those sort of feelings when you did reconnect finally? It definitely changed my life forever in very positive ways. But at the time when Robin and I first met, I was living in foster care and had thought I was an only child, you know, up until that point. And one of the things that you know, both Robert and I growing up in these small rural areas that were wine growing regions, the things that the thing that initially attracted us to wine and the wine business was that it literally takes a village of people to get get the wine in the bottle. And wine was this thing that was like community and it usually involved food and people gathering and coming together and usually no drama and like good times, you know? And so for us on the outside looking in, I was like, oh, we can create our own family. And so independent of each other before we met, we had this attraction and these dreams. And then when we met, just for both of us, I can't, I can't even, I don't think there are good words to describe how life-changing it was, you know? And at the time I was 16 and I was still in high school. Prior to that, I was being recruited by a lot of universities for on athletic scholarship in America. And so as soon as I met Robin, I was like, this is my way to get back to America. And when we met, Robin was living in Atlanta and she moved back to Monterey. And so I literally like got all the offers that were in California. <laughs> I was like, you know, lined them up and basically chose my university. Uh, if I'm keeping it 100 based on who had the best, I was, I was in track and field and volleyball. So who had the best track and field team, who had the best volleyball team and was close to my sister. And that's the university that I chose. And um, I went to USC in Southern California and at the time, yeah. I'm from LA too. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and every chance I got, you know, and every chance Robin got, we would, we would kind of meet halfway. So I would drive up, she would drive down and we would halfway is pretty much like central coast wine country. And so for me, it was just like, I can't even describe like when I met Robin, like how I felt, it was just like, this puzzle piece, I feel like I was this puzzle piece and she was like completing me and we had such a strong bond immediately that like, I was just like, I just have to be like back to her and close to her and just figure it out. Like no matter what. That's beautiful. Now you both grew up in wine country, thousands of miles apart, but you didn't have a background in wine and there was really no blueprint for being a black woman in the wine business at the time. So, you know, after reconnecting, you know, how did the McBride sisters wine collection come next? Was there fundraising and what was like the learning process? Like, you know, learning about wine, like, can you just kind of take us through that journey? I think the journey started in that moment when we were meeting halfway in wine country and we were really getting to know each other as women uh, we're getting to know each other as sisters and building our relationship really from ground zero in day one and with pretty big chapters missing and kind of fill it, filling each other in on these chapters. And Stephanie, you, you noted it. It was like we both grew up in these places that it's crazy. You close your eyes, you know, open your eyes in one place and then do the same thing in the other place. And they look nearly identical, you know, both on the Pacific Ocean, um, like the color of the ocean looks the same, the rocks, like the the, tr the floor, the fauna, everything is crazy. And 
I can't put my finger on what it is, but in those times when we were just getting to know each other, we would do this thing we call driving and dreaming where we had nowhere to go. You know, we just get in the car, we let's go drive, you know, and sometimes, you know, you drive in vineyards and you drive past these big wineries, right? You're like, wow, like one day, like we're going to have that one day. We're going to do that one day, you know? And I think, you know, had we been a, a generation earlier, it would have been really difficult just because the wine industry is such a closed off sort of industry and you have to have so much capital to start it. It's usually intergenerational, but the internet gave us access. You know, that's what, that's what the internet was, right? It's democratizing information for people. Mm-hmm. And that was the first stepping stone. So I think it was just like how we met each other was we realized that anything is possible. And then I think then like taking this idea and talking out loud about it, the next step was like, well, let's start researching. Like, what would it take? Because we had, you know, we had two pretty pretty big problems. We had no money and we didn't know how to make wine. (laughs) (laughs) There was no fundraising. Mm. They were like, you ladies have no money of your own. You don't Mm. know how to make wine. You don't own a vineyard or a winery. And you're just starting out in this business. You know, absolutely not. So everything we did was self-funded. Um, with what little money we did have and bootstrapped and we just built on our success from day one. We sold one case, we bought two cases. Mm. We look back like at our journey and, you know, and on top of this kind of map that s- sort of does this, <laughs> you know, and it was, it's not just like a straight, you know, hockey stick to success, but was that when we first started out was we figured out that we needed to learn the business of wine as well as learning the science and the art of making wine. And Robin found um, that in California, you could get an importer's license, wine Mm. importer's license, and it cost $1,800 and was like all the money in the world that we had at the time. And then I went down to New Zealand and there was a bunch of people, small families, and I, I said to them, hey, don't put all your eggs in our basket, but we think that we could help grow and sell your brand in California. And basically asked for really long payment terms. Mm. <laughs> so the idea was that we could put their wines, you know, in a container on a boat, get it into the port of Long Beach, get it into a bonded warehouse, put it in a bag, hit the street, sell it, collect the money, pay the light bill, and then pay them back. <laughs> <laughs> and buy some more. And buy some more. <laughs> um, and then and then the same time it was every harvest we went down and they were going to teach us how to make wine. And so it was, we were having this in tandem, this dual kind of real world on your feet education of the business of wine and how to make wine. So in 2005 is when we started, when we got that importer's license. Then 2009, Robin and I made our first wine and vintage together. And then we launched the winery in 2010. Mm, I love this so much. I just love how black women will always figure it out. A hundred percent. We will always 100%. make something out of nothing, no yes. matter what. Yes. Every time. Every time. <laughs> I, I, I feel like it's, you know, um, people talk about intergenerational trauma and things that get passed down, but there's so many positive things that I think have been passed down, like through our lineage, through our ancestors. And you just nailed it. It's like having nothing and making something out of nothing and figuring it out. Mm-hmm. And we, we use the acronym all this time, big, figure it the fuck out. We don't pass that on like in corporate settings, but between <laughs> Andre and I, it's figure it the fuck out. Yeah. And, you know, and we do that really well, you know, mm-hmm. because we have to, we have no choice. We're good at know? 
<laughs> no other option. <laughs> I'm writing down that acronym. I that's, know. That's <laughs> <the other> <laughs> um, so I, I think a lot of us, myself included, because I, I do have this jewelry business I've been trying to get off the ground for like ever. I think a lot of us can relate to having a passion for something, but not necessarily knowing where to start in order to like turn that into a profitable business. What advice can you share for other Black girl entrepreneurs this year who may be looking into starting their own business? The last four or five years, we would get tons of women asking about how, where they should go on the entrepreneurial journey. We want to help everybody. And I think women, and especially women, women of color, it's not one size fits all for entrepreneurial journeys. And so we created the McBride Sisters She Can Professional Development Fund. And within that fund is programming um, that we did with Facebook. And they put together this amazing like entrepreneurial suite specifically for women and some of the, some of the challenges that we have as, as Black women to help like nurture and grow up. So the people that are listening, if you're interested and want access to information, because I think a lot of the times it is access to information and I'm wanting to know, please, we have like a, a, a library of like resources and, and people and community to, to help you. And then I think the other piece of that is mentorship. So finding somebody that has been there before, has no agenda when it comes to you and your business, and truly genu- genuinely can lend advice to say, based on experience and a, and a, a track record of success, absolutely don't do this. <laughs> this, will, this will save you a lot of time, money, and heartache. So just don't go down this road. And then I think also too, as a business owner, having someone that can talk to you about things like your business is probably going to need eventually lines of credit and going to a bank and somebody that can help you with that and somebody that can help you with things like managing your cash flow. You know, which I, you know, people, we say cash is the king. I'm like, nah, cash is the emperor. Like that will make or break your company. You know, I think mentorship is so key and mentorship from someone that has no vested interest and like really. Other than being your mentor. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Who's not in your business with you. I echo that because Andrea and I didn't really find mentors in our space because we didn't see any. We didn't see any women. We didn't see women, Black women who own wine companies or related to the wine business. So there was many years where we didn't have that. We didn't have someone to turn to in that way to look for advice. And so I don't have enough finger between the two of us. We don't have enough fingers and toes to count how many things we did the wrong way or the hardest way or backwards or or what have you. And I would, I mean, I wouldn't change any of what got us here today. But I think for us, when people come to us and ask us for advice, we know you don't have to go through all that. You don't have to do everything the hardest and longest way to find out what the best way is for your business to do it. So we always you know, suggest really finding somebody. And our industry is a great example where you know, we started our business 15 years ago. So you know, we Googled because it's free. But you know, we didn't find Black women who had who had founded and led successfully, you know, businesses to where we were trying to build ours, but find someone, even if it's not specific to your business, somebody who has the insights into different facets of business that relate to yours. So just like Andre was saying, when it comes to finances, when it comes to whatever it might be, forecasting, when it comes to, you know, your product and and consumer resonance and, and 
you know, how you structure your business for retail sales, whatever it is, something that's relevant to your business, just do the work to make those connections and find somebody or multiple somebodies who can lend their expertise to you. I think one of the things that I just like love about this is the idea that like fail quickly, right? <laughs> and like yeah. Learn, yeah. learn quicker. A thousand times. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that's that's such an important thing that I I don't think we talk about enough when it comes to being in business, whether you're an entrepreneur or just a woman in the workforce, like being able to fail quickly and recognizing that that is not a reflection of you as a human, no. <laughs> but it's actually an opportunity for learning is important. I always take it as as data points. Right. Say, Rob, Robin McBride is always like, it's not, it's not failing as a computer. It's, <laughs> it, it's a data point and, and mm, analyzing, yeah. you know, well, well, why didn't I succeed? You know, yeah. what went wrong? And then, and then crafting, okay, like that was a part. Okay. Now let's try again. Let's try again until yeah. like you get it perfect. You know, yeah. we might have a little bit of an attitude, but it's fuel for us. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we're like, oh, okay, we see, you know whatever, like, this is how we're going to make ourselves even better for the next time that we like come, we come across a situation. But personally, we don't internalize it as rejection. And I think that's really important because sometimes people can, you know, after a series of no's, after a series of things that that didn't work, feel like, oh my gosh, I'm just, I'm just effing it up over here. I'm not doing this right. But what was important for us, because I think we probably had more than the average share of no's um, (laughs) early on. That could have been interpreted as rejection, but we took we took that information to make our business proposition better. Mm, that's so interesting. And just like hearing you both talk, I feel like, I mean, obviously you guys are sisters, but you ha- also just have this shared set of like values. And mm-hmm. w- one, I think mm-hmm. that a lot of people listening, and I know like Steph and I also can like very much identify with. <laughs> I'm just, again, like we're going to get yeah. shit done. The mm-hmm. end. <laughs> That yeah. is the whole story and yeah. that is the whole book. And I'm I'm wondering like when you think about the nose and when you think about sort of like being able to like turn the tide, the 2020 of it all, right? You you two have had mm-hmm. an amazing year and I think, you know, the energy and orientation towards Black women and our stories has been generative for a lot of us, right? And I think one of the things that we talk a lot about is we know Black women are good for the world, of course, yes. but it's also yeah. like we're good for business, mm-hmm. and that is so powerful. And now as you, you sort of talk about hearing no's, how, is that something you you still feel like you have trouble convincing others of, or has that conversation shifted when you walk into a room or a Zoom, let's say, between <laughs> now and, you know, say 14 months ago, two years ago? So let me give it— I'll give you some like we'll give we'll, we'll give a little context to the wine industry. So, in the 1920s, like in America, and bear with me, but like it'll it'll sit up. It, it'll, History lesson time. Everybody, get your glass of wine. Take me to school. <laughs> um, but in the, in the 1920s, you know, the United States went into prohibition, which meant that alcohol was legal you know, and you couldn't buy it anywhere. And it was because there was an insane amount of alcoholism going on in the United States. And federal government didn't anticipate the rise of... There was an insane amount of women and children beating and not showing up to work. And so um, 
the the federal government didn't anticipate the rise of mob crime, mm. um, like gambling, you know, like all, all these things that, that that went on as soon as they made alcohol illegal. And it was crazy. At one point in New York, I think it was said that there was like, in New York City, there were 70,000 speakeasies mm. disguised, you know, underground and basements and like different things. And so what happened across the country is basically there were these, you know, mob families that were running the importation of illegal alcohol and the distribution. And eventually the federal government was just like, this is crazy. We can't keep up with the crime and the murder and everything that's going on. So basically they went and, and did a deal with these families. And these families said, as long as you pay taxes on this alcohol, which it was like they, they negotiated a really nice, you know, tax revenue on it. We're going to create the system and it's called a three-tier system. So basically, you know, you have like a winery or, you know, somebody outside of the country that produces a product and they can only legally sell to you guys, distributors. And then legally, they can only then sell to a restaurant or a retailer. And it's called a three-tier system. And so basically, to this day... A tied house laws. So... Basically, prohibition was repealed. It's written to the Constitution of the United States. And this tied house law, this three-tier system is, is written to the Constitution. You can't break it. So, like, I can't as, and Robin can't as, like, a winery owner, outside of direct-to-consumer online, I can't sell directly to anybody. Mm. Like, I have anybody. to go, I have to, sell, I have to sell to a distributor a person. who then sells, you know, so on and so forth. And so, basically, like, the great-grandchildren of all of these mobsters to this day run all the alcohol that come in and out of the but but it's basically like five families <laughs> yeah. you know in the United States and these families are Caucasian families mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> Not and and most of the people that work for them look like that and so it's interesting that you talk about 2020 because Rob and I tried to launch Black Girl Magic in the full range at the beginning of 2020, and it fell on deaf ears. And think about this, like we can't, we know that there's like, we know we have this massive community of Black women that want it, but we can't get it into retail unless we go through these people. Hmm. And so like they are the literal gatekeepers. Literally. So we've been advocating in this space for more than a decade right? And like Andrea said, falling on deaf ears. We always have, everybody always got something to give us back as though we don't know the people that we're talking about. We we are those people. Those are our friends. Those are our family. That's this huge, you know, wine community that we've built over the years. But from the retailer as a distributor perspective, it had been, it had seemed like a very risky proposition, right? Like, do we invest in bringing these wines in when we believe that there's not really a consumer here that will be profitable for them? Right. And so year over year, you know, same messaging. Andrea's coming up with different colored charts and, and, <laughs> and spreadsheets and presentations, you know, to really try to illustrate differently. So then comes 2020. The first Blackout Tuesday, we found out about it, I think, like Monday night, eight o'clock. Like the night before. And so we got with our team and, you know, we we're just kind of talking about what, what should we do? And we're like, no. Tomorrow is going to be about black veterans in our community, and we're gonna we're gonna post the list that we have, and we're gonna tell everybody like 
go support these people, buy out their wine clubs, buy their wines. And we really didn't have any idea of what was going to happen, but just really came from a place of like, like this moment is about our community, right? Mm. And so all of our actions need to be about our community. And that thing went viral and, you know, people sold out of their, their wine clubs and their wine and their inventory. And then Robin and I were just like, whoa, this is kind of crazy. So, so sort of the next moment that we had to do that with the, the next Blackout Tuesday, we're like, well, it seems like a lot of people want to help, obviously in our community, but outside of our community too, but they just don't know what to do. So mm-hmm. we just gave people like basic steps, go into your retailer, money is power and tell them what you want to see on the shelf. And again, not thinking that it was going to, you know, do much, but wow, like mm. just understanding the power of community and moving together in a macro sense and advocacy. We got, I got emails from retailers who they thought that we had this giant army of salespeople because people <laughs> were going into their stores talking about the McBride sister sent us and we want Brown Estate. We want, uh, you know, Andre Max, like wines. We want McBride's. All of that. <laughs> they, politely asked, they politely asked us to stop sending our salespeople into their stores. And we're like, oh, we actually don't have any salespeople in that state. So those are not our yeah, salespeople. Yeah. Those are your customers and you should probably hear Listen what they're to trying them. to tell and you. And they send us wow. this like long, like ways of working email. Like, you know, that probably took <laughs> like 40 minutes, an hour to like craft. Like, this is how we do stuff around here. And we're like, those are your customers. You can probably <laughs> listen to yeah. them. Yeah. I love that also, like, this is when you turn the camera on, you're like, now it's time for you guys to figure it the fuck out. Yeah, <laughs> We've exactly. been doing it. <laughs> we can't be the problem and the solution. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Right. Speak on like. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this kind of sticks perfectly into a conversation we've just been having um, over the last few months. We've we've talked a lot about, you know, being the first Black whatever, the first Black right. president, the first Black actress to win an Oscar Um, We recently did a piece around Kamala Harris. She's the first Black, first South Asian, first woman VP. I'm just thinking about the complicated legacy of being the first because it comes with a lot of responsibility um, to those in your community, but it also comes with a lot of pushback from those outside of it. So can you just talk a little bit about your experience being the first Black sister duo to own a winery? Yeah, and specifically to that point, when Robert and I got into the business, it was purely from a standpoint of we wanted to transform the industry. We wanted to lead by example and we wanted to cultivate community through our passion, which was art, which was winemaking, you know, one delicious glass of wine at a time. And then when we found out that we were the first sister duo, it changed things because to your point, we're like, whoa, mm. like we're the first? Whoa, okay. So we had no option but to be successful and we had no option but to try and bring up as many other women of color other women into the industry so that we could broaden I guess the weight of the responsibility if you will a little bit so it just didn't fall on our shoulders but but also in numbers is so powerful and it's so strong as well at the same time and so for, for Robin and I, I was like, okay, wow, this is, this is a really big deal. This is way bigger than us. And we've always thought about it like that. So it's like, you know, our own business, but then how can we also build the Black Vintner community? And then how can we also help 
bridge this race and gender gap that happens in the wine industry because it's so bad and help people get into ownership, help people get into leadership, wherever they are, they fall on the side of the business, whether it's distribution, retail, entrepreneurialism, winemaking, grape growing, whatever it might be. That's always been something that we've thought about. And I think that's like kind of like a conversation that Andre and I have a lot actually is that, you know, when we're going about building our business, we're in meetings, we're doing presentations, you know, we're doing our normal line of business. I think that we always feel, I don't want to say responsibility, but I think that we're aware that for a lot of the people that we're interacting with, this is the first time that they may have dealt with a Black-owned wine company or a Black-owned alcohol company or whatever the case may be. So not that it's a burden. I don't want to say it's a burden or responsibility, but I think that we're very aware that how we behave or how we communicate like, you know, our business that we're very much like setting the expectation or opening the door for those behind us or anybody else who may come in behind us. Genuinely love, loves you guys. And I love my sisters too. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I got to ask, like, there are times when I'm like, you know what, maybe you need to go in the other room and I don't see you for a few hours or (laughs) I don't see you for a few days or I go back to my apartment and you go back to yours. You know, when it comes to sort of like, Being able to disagree in a healthy way, like as sisters, but also obviously as business partners and entrepreneurs, what does that look like? And sort of what are the the challenges of that? And then ultimately, how do you how do you find that that balance between being sisters and businesswomen? I mean, first and foremost, going back to how we met and all of the impossibility, like it seemed at the time of us finding and meeting, meeting each other. I think unspoken for many years was just like our relationship and us being together so sacred to us and so treasured that we protected that nothing would ever come between us, like full stop, period, right? So it's just like, that's the foundation. And then I think on top of that is the fact that in terms of our personalities, our strengths, our weaknesses, we're really yin and yang. And even down to like, the way that we run the business and our responsibilities, we're complementary pieces. We're we're so similar, but so different, you know? Mm. And so naturally, Robin runs one side of the business. I run the other side of the business. And so when it comes to- I mean, it's not that clean though. Our staff wishes (laughs) that it was. I always say we're like a two-headed beast, but we (laughs) we, we do lean to like, you know, one side or the other, but both of us are kind of all over everybody's. All parts of our business. I think because, like if we if we had both had a lot of similarities in terms of like our strengths in relation to business, I think there probably would be a lot of clashing because one would would always want to be like kind of leading. But I think because we are complementary, like Robin has a way better palette than I do. You know, she runs like winery operations, the winemaking team. You know, and even though, of course, I'm a part of the winemaking team, she really leads the winemaking team, you know? And then for me, like she mentioned, like I'm like data, you know? So I'm like, I love the our business model and like sales and like, you know, getting into that aspect of it. And so it's really complimentary, you know? And I think it's like, I think we both kind of have servant leadership ideology where it's like, okay, whoever is the right person in the room to lead this and has the most expertise, despite what the title is, 
that's the person that should be leading this right now because that's going to get us to like the goal of like where we need to get, you know? And so I think that's what's made it complimentary. And people always ask us this, like, don't you guys fight yeah. all the time? I think literally we've had like one, like I would call it like a disagreement and, and it, it literally was like, had nothing to do with business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, you wore my shirt. Like, <laughs> it was toothpaste, actually. It was toothpaste. It was, it was literally, it was like three in the morning because, you know, it was like when we first started out and we like, you know, all the cheap flights like, New Zealand. Early, and, and like, you know, all the cheap flights are like early flights. So like we had to get up hella early in the morning and we didn't want to pay for like check luggage. So we had like, you know, carry on and like, we had like 20 or, or, days or in New Gami. Zealand with carry-on only. So everything you know? was like oh, packed wow. into carry-on. Yeah. Like you can okay. imagine, right? Like the Tetris that was inside of these bags. I'm just setting the stage. For this yeah. Program. And then so, you know, so we had to like be up early. We've been out, you know, enjoying the the benefits of the we wine industry the night yeah. before. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know? And then, you know, and Robert had probably spent like 30 minutes at three o'clock in the morning, like trying to get all her stuff into this bag. And I was like, hey, yo, can you like give me that toothpaste or what? And she like looked at me and was just like, I am going to kill you. But that's the <laughs> oh. extent of, that's the extent of like how crazy. That's about like, as bad as it's yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's pretty good. You guys are good. Oh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. There's just not that much there. But I think one thing that we have on the interpersonal family sister piece of it is that I think we're both really able to recognize when something is really important to the other, right? So we have like sort of the the pieces of business that just sort of naturally fall under us based on our own, you know, skills, our own interests or whatever. But like if Andrea is like really passionate about some project or something is really, really important to her, like I'm going to defer to her and I'm going to support her in that. And she does the same for me. So we don't really challenge each other because our, our vision for the business is completely in sync. Like we know precisely what we see for the future. We know, you know, one year, three years, 10 years, we know exactly where we expect our business to be. So we're very much aligned that way. So on a day-to-day basis, if there's something that's whatever, that Andrea's, I don't even know, there's so many examples, something that she's like, you know, super passionate about. She's like, has all this energy around whatever. Like, I'm not uh, like a like a D'Angelo and Versus and pulling that together. Oh, D'Angelo and Versus, for instance. <laughs> I didn't want to touch that with a template pull. I would have pulled the plug on that a long time ago. There's a whole bunch of back. There's a whole bunch of backstory there, girl. Please. Okay. I, I can't even. All right. So, okay. So just know it was messy. Okay. I believe that. <laughs> all right. Well, last question. You talked about just having all same goals, sort of for a year, two years, five years, ten years out. What does that look like? What does McBride Sisters look like, you know, in 2031? And what do you sort of like envision for the community? Because I think a lot of what you've mentioned, you've just gone back to the customer, to your audience, to that community, and being able to sort of open the door for more behind you. So what does that look like as you, as we sort of step into the next phase of this Black Girl Magic? When we entered the wine industry, a lot of, it was really clear that wine in America was class-based and race-based. And we wanted to democratize the wine experience for everybody. And that hasn't changed. And so it's just building that family that we felt like that we didn't have. And, you know, people that are passionate about wine and gathering and community and Black joy and joy in general, you know. And and I think that's that's the vision for what we see. And then just adding 
adding more expressions of wine and, and creating new products and exploring new channels and new categories and like wine, beverage, alcohol. I'll leave it there. Um, you might see some new things coming. I see some things. Um, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and wine destinations, you know, mm. physical places oh. that people can come and gather. And so, yeah. I love that. You you guys have the range. <laughs> like if you, if you call me, this is what I always say. You guys, you call on me, I will come. So call me to the carpet, I will arrive. <laughs> uh, okay, amazing. Thank you. Thank you both, thank Robin and Andrea. So I feel like no, thank you gave you. us thank you. just like such good business gems that are practical and actionable and serviceable for our audience, but also just like such amazing, strong, dominant, just like, boss energy that I feel like I needed to hear today just overall (laughs) and reminding us who we were and that we're all just going to figure it the fuck out because that's what we do. (laughs) Figure it the fuck out. And and we are all our sister's keepers, you know? So we we draw on energy from each other like when we need it. You know, it's that that flow that we all need. Um, So thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Yes. Cheers. The Go Off This Podcast is a Refinery29 original. It is produced by Rashad Isaac, Shirley Williams, Jordan Mason, and me, Chelsea Sanders. It's edited by Hanger Studios. My co-hosts today were Kathleen Newman-Bermang, Stephanie Long, and Sydney Clark. Like what you heard and want some more? Head over to Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts to catch up on all episodes. And don't forget to drop a review or leave a comment to let us know what you think. You can also find us where it all started, on Instagram, at R29Unbothered. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, it's okay to go off, sis. Money world.